Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Debbie and I are delighted to be here. It's been a couple years, I think, since we've been able to come up and be with you. In fact, one of the times we came up was on a, I think it was the same weekend, because we came to hear Steve, and he was on vacation. And uh, Bernie Neffley was speaking, but that particular Sunday was really a bad Sunday. We live in the Altoona area. We came up through the Tipton Way, wondering all the way whether we should be on our way, because it was really bad out. But once we got over the ridge, we didn't want to go back. So we came on and had a good time with you folks that day, and we went home through Clearfield and, and Phillipsburg and so forth, a little safer going down the hill. We're excited to be here, and... Just trust that the Lord will use this message to encourage each of us as we get started in 2023. I don't know about you, but we're in years that sound like science fiction to me. How about, how about you guys? Just doesn't sound right when that comes out of our mouths, but it's really where we are. As we've prayed, I trust that Pastor Steve and Laurel are having a good time with their family. What I want to know, and I want to see the pictures, when Steve goes out there, does he suddenly become a cowboy? Does he wear a big cowboy hat and that kind of stuff? I want the pictures, and uh, we'll see. During Advent, Steve was preaching uh, that series through Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which describes to us a lot of who God is. God told Moses about himself. He said, I'm merciful. He said, I'm gracious, slow to anger, that he has steadfast love for his people, that he's faithful, that he's forgiving. And yet in that passage, it reminds us there is a judge, and it's God himself, that Christ will be our judge, who will judge the guilty. So during Advent, you were going through those wonderful things, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, his forgiveness. This morning, I want to just continue on with thinking about who God is. And as we get a better understanding of who God is, it helps us to really value the salvation that he's given to us. It helps us to understand in a better way his mercy, his grace. And so this morning we're just going to continue to move in thinking about who is this God that we worship, that we follow. Before I get into the text that we're various texts that we're going to look at this morning. A couple things on your English Bibles. If you see the word Lord, and it's all capital case letters, capital L, capital O, and the O-R-D may be smaller in size, but all of them capital case letters, it's the name Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. If it's, it's always a capital L in Scripture, but small case O-R-D, it's another word for Lord, which both Hebrew and Greek have words for Lord, which the context lets us know if it's talking about our God or some other God um, or some other earthly king. Those, those words for Lord may be used in various ways. But in your Bible, if it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's that name, I am that I am. Some of the passages we're going to look at this morning Use that, and if, if you see that, it'll help you. The other thing that we need to realize is that Greek and Hebrew don't have the comparative or superlative uh, use of adverbs and adjectives that our English does. So good, better, best, or bad and worse. It, it doesn't have those kind of distinctions. So 
in Scripture, if you have a more literal translation, it'll say, Jesus often said, truly, truly. Well, he's saying here, this is something that's really true. You need to pay attention. Truly, truly. Some of the newer translations will translate, this is really true, instead of repeating the word. Because our English has those kinds of comparisons, or superlative being the great thing. In Scripture, there's only two words that are then used three times, which we have good, better, best, three times. One of them is a negative. It's the word woe. Woe is used through Scripture in a lot of places as a major warning. Woe, something bad's going to happen. And in Revelation 8.13, we read, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So this is the trumpets in Revelation, God's judgment being poured out, and the message to those who may face that is, woe, woe, woe. Not, not good news. In other words, this is as bad as it gets. Um, in English, it helps. Uh, I, I, I succumb to now and then watching professional bull riders. Any fans of PBR here? Um, one time I was watching, and one of the announcers gave me the best description of worse that I've heard. He said that things went bad wrong. And that, that kind of helps you get, get the feeling there. Thankfully, the sermon's not going to be about woe this morning, but something far, far better. The other word that's used three times in Scripture, in a couple of places, is the word holy. And it's describing our God. Holy, holy, holy. One place is Isaiah 6. Some of us know that passage well. Isaiah has this vision of God. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there was smoke, and, and Isaiah is just caught up in this. And then the angelic beings are saying this. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What's he saying? He's saying God is the ultimate. God is the absolute holy. We see that again in Revelation. John has the vision of God at his throne in chapter 4. And verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we serve a God that Scripture describes as the absolute essence of what holiness is. He's holy, holy, holy. So what does holy mean? One of those things that's sometimes hard to get our mind around. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, theologians indicate that there's two things that this means. One is that God is holy other. And by that, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy other. He's totally different from you and me. Yes, we're created in some way in God's image. But we're not God, are we? God is different from us. God is above us. God is vast vastly beyond us. God is so great we cannot get our minds around him. God is so great that he hasn't revealed every aspect of who he is in in scripture. He's given us all we need for salvation and to walk with him, but he's greater than even what the Bible describes him to be. He's wholly other. In, In scripture, we find 
in Isaiah 55, a description God gives us of what some of that means. Now, Isaiah 55 is one of three chapters that are wonderful Old Testament texts. I wish we had time to go through them all. In Isaiah 53, you have the suffering servant that gives us the prophecy about who Jesus is and what he was going to do. He was going to die for our iniquities, for our sins. And Jesus did that. In chapter 54, you have the covenant, the renewal of God's covenant with his people and how he was going to save his people and his invitation to them to be in covenant with him. And then in chapter 55, it gets really good for those of us that are Gentile, those of us non-Jewish, because it's the invitation to all the rest, all the nations, all the ethnic groups, all of the other people. And there's that invitation to come and take for free. It's buy food without money. That's my paraphrase of it. It's a wonderful text. In the middle of it, though, God says some amazing things. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then God begins to speak. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those last two verses have comparisons. God, us, us, God, God, us, God, us. If you look at that again. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God's thoughts are thoughts. His thoughts are above ours, beyond ours. They're not our thoughts. Then there's kind of a warning. He switches the order. Neither are your ways my ways. God's stating an obvious thing. We're sinners. We have some problems. Our ways are not his ways. And then as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways are higher than your ways. He's calling us to something different here, isn't he? And your thoughts So, God is wholly other. His thinking is beyond us. After all, he's the guy, the being, who out of nothing created everything that is. He was the one who could breathe life into Adam. He's the one who created everything we know and see. He is beyond us. And don't we want a God who's beyond us? I know I do. I don't want him to be like me. Do I want to be like him? Yes. But he is wholly other. The other aspect of holiness is the one we think of more often, and that's his absolute sinlessness, his purity. There's nothing evil in God. There's nothing dark. He is completely righteous, completely holy. He's the epitome of what holiness or purity, clean, means. Righteous, All of what that means is God in his holiness. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is him, is he. With having a holy God who's different than us, above us, beyond us, who's absolutely pure, we have a problem, don't we? We see it in Isaiah's vision. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he heard the angels 
proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he saw himself in comparison to God. And he said, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. We have a problem, a sin problem. And we're called in scripture to be holy. In 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Boy, I don't know about you, but when I look inside of Brad Sickler, that is a problem. I have a sin nature, and I've sinned. And in case you didn't know it, so have you. It's a problem. We have a holy God who's called us to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, now that I have you with a problem, I'm going to leave you there for just a minute because we want to think about another thing about who God is. And that is that this holy God is all-sufficient. We could go through a lot of different scriptures this morning to build the case that God is completely sufficient in and of himself. The best scripture that I know of to describe this is in Paul's address to the, to the people of Athens on Mars Hill. As he's speaking to them, if you remember that passage, he's, he, he saw a temple to the unknown God, and, he, and that's his avenue into talking to these philosophers. And he says in Acts 17, beginning of verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Did you know that God doesn't live here? Now, don't hang me yet. You dedicated this building to the Lord for his, his use, and he's met you in very powerful ways here. Praise the Lord. But when we leave here, all of you that know Jesus as your Savior have the Holy Spirit, and God goes with us, does he not? And when we come together, he's here in our presence in a special way. So he has blessed this place, but we don't have to come here to meet him. We can meet him at work. We can meet him at school. Why? Because he's there. He doesn't dwell in houses built with him in hands. This passage goes on. The maker of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I don't know if it hits you. But our God is not served by human hands. How often do we get the idea, I'm going to go do something for Jesus? It's not a bad motive. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He's completely self-sufficient. 
in my last church at Bell Vernon, we had the privilege of building a new church. And it took us forever to find the right location. We were praying about it. And every time we'd go to look at one, one elder or another would say, ah, this just isn't the right place. And the one elder that didn't want to go in the direction we ended up moving, um, I said, we're going to go out to such and such a place. And he was just, ah, I'm not sure, Pastor. We, we got on that piece of property. And even he, he said, you know, I worked on a building. He was in construction. I worked on a building just up the, up the road here. And he said, every day I went by here, I prayed that there'd be a church there someday. As we bought the place and we began to build there, several people from the community, not from our church, stopped and said, you know, I've prayed for years that there would be a church on this, on this corner. We were pretty sure we had heard from the Lord at that point. But in one of our elders' meetings, one of the elders said, you know, if we wouldn't have been obedient to do this, God would have raised up some other church to build this church. And I believe he was absolutely right. You see, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he wants, in the sense of service, he wants to give us the opportunity to join him in what he's doing. So it's not this burden, oh, I got to go do this because of such and such. Or I'm going to go serve Jesus. It's Jesus calling out to us saying, I have everything you need. Come, be a part of what I'm doing. What a, what a blessing, what an honor to be a part of what God is doing. You see, he doesn't need us, but he wants us. It starts right with that verse most of us have memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have a sin nature. We're all sinners, and people will ask, well, why doesn't God deal with it? Well, if he had dealt with it, he would have put Adam and Eve in hell, and it would have been all over. But he didn't want to damn people. He wanted to save them. He loves us. He doesn't need us at all. He doesn't need anything from us. You know that old chorus some of us are old enough to have sung? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine, and that's as far as I remember it. I'm getting older. He doesn't need anything from us. He's not served by human hands, but he loves us. He wants us. And think about it. Isn't that the kind of God you want? One that doesn't need anything. He just wants us. He loves us. He wants us to be a part of what he's doing. Romans 5, 7 and 8 say, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't need us. He could have judged right at the beginning or at any point there in between. But he loves us. And he's patient. That's why he hasn't come back yet. So that more people can come to know him and be forgiven and be a part of what he's doing. 1 John four sixteen says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God doesn't need anything from you. He just loves you and wants you to be with him and follow him and be a part of what he's doing. You see, this holy, all-sufficient God keeps his promises. 
We understand it in the salvation end of things in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It kind of reiterates what, what I just read in Romans. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're coming back to that holiness idea. We have a problem. We're not holy and we have a holy, holy, holy God. But God made Jesus, the one that came, God the flesh taking on flesh, the incarnation. He lived a perfect life. He took our sin upon himself and was crucified on the cross. He died there because of our sin. He was buried. But praise the Lord, he rose from the dead. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him, another way to say that is we might be able to be holy. It's not our own holiness. It's Jesus' holiness applied to us. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has promised that through Jesus, those of us who repent of our sin, receive him in faith, he gives us his spirit, he begins to transform us into his righteousness. And it's all those promises about salvation that apply to us. It's all those promises about becoming like him that apply to us. Some of you may be thinking, well, I know Jesus, I've repented of my sins and I've walked with Jesus, but... Boy, I'm facing a lot of issues this year. There's a lot of bad things going on in my life. Well, we have another promise we can claim. Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This holy, all-sufficient God has promised to keep his promises. So what is our response? In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul gives us an idea. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This year, I trust we'll all seek to grow closer to God, to understand his holiness more deeply. And we have a promise to go with that, don't we? The Lord said, draw near to me, And I'll draw near to you. If we'll seek to better understand the holiness of God and what he's calling us to be in him, but also his all-sufficiency, that he doesn't need anything from us. He just wants us to be with him. And he's willing to change our hearts and to change us so that we can be with him. You're going to get something that the other service didn't get. I think I should talk about this. You know, the Old Testament temple, temple and the tabernacle system, all those details. If you're reading through the Bible this year, you're going to get to all those details. Why was God so exacting in the making of the tabernacle and later the temple and all of the way the priest was to be prepared and dressed and how they were to consecrate all of the things? Why? 
It was so that sinful people could come and worship a holy, holy, holy God without dying. If you read the whole of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is every one of those sacrifices and offerings. And he did it completely. So that as we come to Jesus, we can come into his presence without dying. Remember, you you were looking at Moses and what God said when Moses was showing him his glory. Why couldn't he see God face to face? Because he would have died. But God put him in the cleft and shielded him so that he could live. And he told him who he was. Jesus, when he died on the cross, the, the veil ripped from top to bottom and opened the way to the presence of God so that we can be in his presence. And it's all because of what Christ has done. You see, our response needs to be total surrender. Some of you can quote Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a good place to begin. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Jesus has made it possible for those of us who have that sin problem, who are not holy, to be able to be in fellowship with the holy, holy Holy God. And that'll be true at the end as well. Revelation 22, beginning at verse 11. It says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Then, thankfully, it changes to the righteous. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, and this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter by the city, enter the city by the gates. To wash our robes is a figurative way of talking about repentance, turning from our sin, receiving Christ as Savior. For those of us that have done that years ago, it's a continued life of repentance and trust. Trust and following Jesus. He gives us his spirit, who's at work within us, giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we might grow in that. Blessed are those whose who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, eternal life. And we do this together. Praise the Lord. William Murray in a commentary says, it is important to note that no one is ever called to be or can be holy alone. The saints comprise the church as a holy communion. It is in the middle of normal life that the central factors of holiness are worked out. In other words, we encourage one another. Paul describes that to the Thessalonians as he's talking about, hey, look at my example and and live this out. He says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at 10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. 
For you know, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We each need to be saved individually, but we're saved into the body of Christ. And one of the ways that the Lord wants to develop holiness in us is our interaction with each other. How we trust the Lord. How we respond when one of us hurts the other. Guarantee in a, si- in a church this size, that's going to happen. Somebody's going to disappoint somebody else. Somebody's going to be hurt. How we handle that. Do we let the Lord forgive us? Do we let the Lord lead us to forgive others? Do we let the Lord lead us to apologize to others? It's in the mix of that that the Lord develops his holiness, his righteousness in us so that we live out the final verse that I'll read to you, verses, Hebrews ten nineteen, and here it's talking about how Jesus did open up the way to the Holy of Holies, and Jesus is our great high priest. Listen to these verses. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to spur up one another to love and good works, Not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. As we begin 2023 together, will we seek to better understand our God? He is holy, holy, holy. And he's provided the means for unholy people to become holy in him. And his means are all sufficient. He doesn't need anything from you. If you're serving out of burden and I'm the only one that can do it, stop it. The Lord probably doesn't need that ministry or he'll raise somebody else up for it. But if you realize the Lord's at work here and he's invited me to be able to be a part of this part of the work, jump in with both feet. It's a great ride, I'll tell you, as the Lord uses you to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And as we do that together, the Lord lets us continue to work on that holiness through the bumps and the the bruises. We encourage one another and lift each other up. May 2023 be a year of increasing holiness in the midst of the Kerwinsville Alliance Church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your all-sufficiency. We thank you for your perfection, dear Lord. May we let you work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.